And now for an inside look at college sports with the men in the know, J.C. and Morgan. Here's Mike Morgan and J.C. Sherbert. Welcome once again to number 107, 107th edition of the J.C. and Morgan podcast. J.C. Sherbert of 24-7 Sports, thebigspur.com. Mike Morgan of ESPN, the SEC Network. J.C. still in uh, occasionally frigid Chi-Town. I'm coming to you from the Mecca of college football located in Atlanta, uh, a state which has been open now for over a month. And uh, much like some of the other states that have been open for a month, you're not going to hear this reported, but our numbers are considerably down. Just thought I'd throw that out there because it does. It is relative to uh, college football in a way because uh, life is uh, relative and uh, college football seems to obviously uh, everybody is kind of curious what's going to happen. JC, you and I have been talking about it for uh, since it happened, since everything kind of the, the world as we know it shut down in sports on March the 12th, and here we are, the final days of May, and it is on, game on. Uh, SEC passing legislation that uh, players can report on June the 8th. Other schools and other conferences are doing that. I think the last one of the party might actually be Oklahoma. Um, uh, on July the 1st, it's kind of a, a Lincoln Riley uh, deal there, but uh, whatever the case may be, whether it's June 8th or June 15th or June 22nd or July 1st, kids are going to be out there. They're going to be working out before you know it, they're going to be practicing and we're going to be having games. And that puts a smile on my face. Oh yeah, mine too. Definitely. I think, uh, you know, we, we, we got some questions, you know, what, what's it going to look like? And, um, I, I personally think my gut feeling is the more we move toward the season and the further we get away from certain other things, you know, the more I, I, I think we're going to see a full season with no changes in terms of the, uh, the, um, you know, the schedule. And so I think it's, uh, it's just one of those things that uh, I, I think, as we get closer and closer, my confidence is in um, in them, uh, you know, in them seeing everything through. And so I think that's a good thing. Yep. I mean, again, I go back to uh, seven weeks ago when we did this and uh, you captured uh, the theme of our podcast uh, with the title, Nothing Wrong With Being Positive. Uh, at that point, I, I know I certainly didn't understand the need for so many people at that point with so many months uh, to ha- of, of things that would happen before we even have to think about making radical changes to anything. But people were already just waving the white flag and mailing it in on college football. You still had some of that as recently as a few weeks ago. And even now you still have some people, well, what if a player tests positive? Uh, why are kids being asked to stay on campus when the regular student body is going home early uh, around Thanksgiving? Uh, there is just this... Apparently, there's this need for some to be overly cynical, and I don't know. I don't know. Like, I know drama sells in coverage of anything. You know, if you're, especially if you're in television, first of all, chances are you've still got your jobs. You're still getting paid, so you're, you're okay. The things around you, yes, they're affecting you in some ways, but they're not affecting you uh, so harshly that you have to worry about things like filing for unemployment. Uh, how are you going to feed your family? What is your job security? Thankfully, you have all that settled. Uh, and for the people that have it settled to preach on how everybody else should just 
not try to return to normal at all and just kind of stay shut in their houses. Uh, I, I think, I think that's finally being viewed as a less than ideal situation and not a real popular sentiment. I know people in the media very often like to try and relate to the common man. You're not relating to the common man at all with that. So you might want to put some of that kind of preachiness aside when you're going out there and, uh, and doing that. And the other thing is, I mean, I think there's some people, some writers, JC, without mentioning names, they've already got their column written. The moment that a team has a couple of guys test positive, they've already got their column written. I told you so. This was, this was completely irresponsible to begin with. I, I'm just going to say this, and I'm going to get on to what I think was a really important article written by Mark Schleybaugh of ESPN.com. Some people that have, who are trying to cover this have an inherent blind spot to problem solving, and that's giving them the benefit of the doubt. That's saying they don't necessarily have an agenda, and they're not trying to be political. And I'm just saying at best, they have a blind spot towards problem solving. Yeah. And sadly... They are in a world, JC, where everything is a binary decision. In other words, you have to choose one or the other. There is no middle ground. You either are in favor of being safe and doing what's best to avoid death and despair, or or you just want a college football season so that $4 billion won't disappear and it can be dispersed and, and rabid college football fans can have their appetites for the sports satiated. You have to pick one or the other. You can't be in the middle. So it, you, you either don't like death and despair or you're for a college football season. To that, I say wrong. There is a middle ground, larger size than the Grand Canyon between those two sentiments, but they refuse to recognize it. And so their columns are always written for a case where a team has a couple, uh, sorry, their column is already written. Like I said, a team that's going to have a couple of players test positive, and this is going to happen. Uh, they're already ready to just tee off and say, I told you so that's fine. You know, you've got, you've got the power of the pen, uh, perhaps a TV or radio format. You can do so. But for the rest of us who do have some problem solving, at least thought processes. And for the people that actually run college football and sports as a whole, but this is not just college football, by the way, as we've talked about for weeks on end, the NFL is going to have a season. Now, as we sit here in late May, it looks almost certain that the NBA is going to have their postseason. The NHL has already announced they're going to have their postseason. And the only thing that's going to stop a major league baseball season is if the players will agree to concede some of their salary because they're not going to play even half of a season, but everybody else is moving on. Uh, but some of the people that cover college football want to shame you into thinking that if you think this is a good idea, then you just don't care about people or the quality of life. And, and that's uh, so wrong in so many ways, but I don't have time to address each and every bit of it. Mm. Those people are what I call intellectually inferior. <laughs> um, and, and, and no, I mean, you have to have some level of intelligence to dissect complex situations and to see all sides of a complex situation. And unless you have, I, and I'm taking away the folks that have an agenda because I'm, I still believe when you look at it beyond sports with the pandemic, there's some people that, um, and there was even an article in Politico magazine that, that shined a big old spotlight on this, that, you know, a lot of the folks, the diehards in the democratic party, because they don't want a certain person elected president, which I don't, I think he, he does enough to 
<laughs> you know, I, I don't think you need that much material there, you know, <laughs> to, but they don't want a certain person to be elected president. So they're happy that the economy's tanked. Um, and I'm not even saying that any of these people are like this. I'm saying they're just intellectually inferior because, you know, it's, it's way more complex and complicated than just, oh, you love death. You want to kill your grandparents and all elderly people. And, oh, well, you're just uh, out there, you know, riding shirtless in the back of a truck, waving a flag, going, oh, come on, COVID, kill me, kill me. <laughs> like you said, there's a, there's a canyon uh, worth of uh, range there between those two, two deals. And, and I, think, I think it's unfortunate that people would, would even take something like this and, and decide that and make these moral decisions on all of us. And uh, it, it's, uh, it's sad. But, but look, Mike, here's the bottom line. You're absolutely right. Major League Baseball is coming back. The, the NHL thing apparently is just going to be like a, like a big playoff deal, like a lot of playoffs. And um, NFL's probably coming back, you know, as planned. And, and then we got college football, and, and they're, they're going to do the best they can. Uh, Walt Disney World is opening Open back up in July. So, I mean, look, if, if, if Disney, with as many thousands of people as visit there on a daily basis, if they can open up safely, which they're not going to open up if it's not safe, and um, host guests and, and, and kids and parents and strollers and all the uh, germ-toting uh, aspects of visitors to Disney World, um, and they're going to be able to do it safely because they have a plan. The smart people that run college football uh, should be able to as well. And, and as you said, you know, plan four, um, and we'll talk about some of this later too with our guests, but plan four, the fact that inevitably a player is going to test positive, you know, you're going to have some positives and, and you're going to have to live with it because um, nothing's going to be ideal about the situation. But the, the bottom line is, you know, I, I think that it's very cynical to be sitting there and, 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 and I call it, you know, with some of these reporters, they have a bag full of ooh-wees. You know, it's like, uh, ooh-wee, ooh-wee, you started college football bag and somebody tested positive for COVID. Ooh-wee, ooh-wee. And it's this whole breathless approach to, you know, covering and I think sort of trying to tear down the sport in a lot of ways, uh, which quite frankly, you know, makes me want to uh, lose my breakfast a lot of times when I really kind of think about what's going on there. But I'll, I'll stop at that and just say the people that have that column written are intellectually inferior <laughs> and thank God they're not living in the real world, having to solve real world issues at the moment. Well, yeah, I mean, again, that, that is something to be thankful for the, the, the people that are constantly uh, looking for a reason to shut everything down, including college football. Thankfully, these are not the people that are in charge of problem solving. So it's a lot easier to just sit there uh, and, and write something and, and critiquing, and really sometimes eviscerating people who actually are trying to think, how can we get this done? How do we do this safely, effectively? Um, uh, but, but how do we take pr procedures to do something we've never had to do before? I mean, this is, this is truly new, but that's the same in every other facet of life. Everything is new here. Uh, and, but that's why we pay people a lot of money to solve problems. That's why every state has a governor. Um, and again, as we can see, some governors believe one thing and others, uh, believe in another, and that may or may not affect 
certain colleges in this whole process. But I think what we've what we've seen, and I think what the Michigan president is going to learn, mm. is that when you start messing around with people's college football you better be able to prove that it is so deleterious and so uh, harmful and so dangerous that there's no alternative. You better be able to prove that. Otherwise uh, you might find yourself pushed out because not even school presidents, you might be top of the food chain for the time being. Uh, We've seen school presidents being shown the door by people involved with athletics when they feel like they're not doing what's best, not not only for the academics part of their institution, but also the athletics part of the institution. And let's be honest about it. It is big. And yes, if you want to be cynical and say, oh, it's just about the money. Well, yes, money is a huge part of it. What do you have a job for? Oh, you have a job for just about the money. Uh, yeah, I got to pay and pay a mortgage. I got to support my family. So you, you might think that you're sounding intellectually superior or judgmental in that respect, but people can relate to this stuff. And there are a lot of jobs at stake. And if you if you want to put it and frame it in the um, in the sense that well, this is an unpaid labored force. The moment you take scholarships out of these kids' hands, you're not just taking them away from a classroom, which I realize there are some people that don't put any value on a college education at all. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it is important. You've already made up your mind on that. Fine. Uh, These kids have virtually everything paid for by virtue of that scholarship. Let me repeat that. These young men have virtually everything taken care of, soup to nuts, every meal, lodging extra cash in the, in the guise of uh, cost of attendance, whatever you want to call it, uh, Pell Grant money, all those things go away if they're not all of a sudden enrolled and if they're not all of a sudden scholarship athletes. So don't tell me that they don't benefit from being a scholarship athlete in more ways than one, even if you just devalue to the utmost bare bones zero for education. Again, that's your right to do so. So let's break down the money, okay? Uh, And uh, many of these numbers, if you've been listening to us for the last two months, they're going to sound like we're being repetitive because I've quoted some of these numbers just talking to people that I know uh, that are in the business of athletic administration, including multiple athletic directors. Great article by Mark Schleybaugh that just came out the other day uh, that that really spells out chapter and verse what's at stake here. Roughly 80% of the revenue for Power 5 schools comes from football. Okay, and we're not going to sit here and get into the semantics of, well, this school is actually 72%. Well, that school is 83%. Roughly 80% for Power 5 schools. Uh, as, as we've mentioned before, 65 to 70%, and this would vary a little bit more because some schools sell out every game. Some don't, but 65 to 70% of that money, one way or another comes from broadcast rights, i.e. overwhelmingly television. Again, the money for ticket revenue for Georgia compared to Vanderbilt, dramatically different, but overall, most athletic departments, the majority of the money you know, the payout that comes at the end of the year, the 45 million plus for every SEC school, that's not ticket money. That's television money. And then you get extra money if you're in the playoff. And you get extra money if you're in the conference championship game. We're not even including basketball in March Madness, which obviously schools had to take a haircut on that. So these numbers were all spelled out in the piece. 
$4 billion would be lost without college football. And I realize in a time where numbers are being thrown around, trillion-dollar bailout, this billion-dollar here, billion-dollar there, it maybe doesn't add up to much. But sit down and like write down $999,000 on a piece of paper, okay? And then multiply that by a thousand and then keep going, right? I mean, you get, you start understanding the point. $4 billion is a ton. And the fact of the matter is, and I don't think, I really don't think JC, that people truly understood this until we got to this point, because as I like to say, there's a lot of people that assume that these schools have a bottomless pit of money in their athletic departments. A season without football would have sank a lot of programs, a season without football, they, they don't have cash reserves, most of these schools. They, they don't have just like $100 million just in case fund. So if you just cut off all the financial bloodlines to these programs, it would be crippling. It would be absolutely crippling. crippling. So with all that being said, now you know uh, why problem solvers had to actually get in the rooms and try to solve problems. Uh, not to mention everybody just wants sports. It, it's, it's good for morale. It's good for everything. I mean, if, if a single dollar didn't change hands, we would still want all of this. Uh, it, it's good. There's nothing bad that comes out of it. If of course it is safe, but that those are some of the numbers brought up in the piece. It also brought up the fact that for example, uh, your average power five school now, in the other sports, because you hear now about other sports being cut out, particularly of uh, group five schools, you typically, you're in the red about $10 million when you're talking about uh, men's and women's golf, softball, men's and women's tennis, men's and women's track and field. And in many cases, baseball is in the red. You know, your average school is doling out in the red $10 million in, in those particular categories. Uh, football not only makes money, it, it allows other sports to survive. Uh, and so that is something to be pointed out. Now, you might say, well, what about the Group 5 schools? That's in the article, too. For example, Georgia Southern. Georgia Southern received $1.75 million in payouts for playing road games last year at LSU in Minnesota. This coming se- uh, season, the Eagles are scheduled to receive $1.5 million for playing Ole Miss. The AD says the entire athletic department budget for a school like that is $29.5 million, and they broke even last year. You take away football, and they, they're just, you know, they're, they're up the creek without a paddle. So those are some of the numbers, um, just to kind of spell out chapter and verse, just how important college football is to these universities and to their respective athletic departments. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, you know, the University of Michigan, um, and people may not realize this, it's the largest publicly funded research institution in America. That's a heck of a school. Football's not going to go away if they miss a year. Um, and so I think his – and I know Paul Feinbaum was talking about maybe a kind of a, a seminal moment or whatever um, – I think I think with Michigan, they're in the, in the position where, as a university, they they don't have to have football. Quite frankly, uh, 
Billions you have of, to have kids on campus. Billions of dollars uh, in, in terms of an endowment and things like that. And his point, too, which I think of all the, the, the talking points I've heard out of leadership at, at universities uh, when it comes to this situation, the dumbest one, I think, is, well, we don't, we're not going to have sports without the student, students being on campus with in-person instruction. And I'm like, I get it. I understand that we're all sitting here trying to say, oh, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's just, they're student athletes. and oh, You got to have the student experience and all that good stuff. I'll tell you what, I, I, and I know that he's probably got a – got more of an education in public health than I do, definitely looking at his degrees. But I would think, just using common sense, it will be much harder to social distance and contain outbreaks with a 40,000 student to 50,000 student body of people from all walks of life. We've been to college, Mike. It's disgusting. Mm -hmm. It's disgusting. (laughs) You've You've lived in a dorm before. Well, dorm rooms especially. Dorms are disgusting. I quickly got out of dorm life after my freshman year because it's so disgusting. I I had some weird roommates. Yeah, you're going 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 into high-rise buildings a lot of times on campuses where you're going up elevators. You're sitting in cramped classrooms where are confined spaces. Lots of of them don't have windows. I mean, it's a, a college to me. Is the I mean, not to mention the bars and everything that are adjacent to it. A college to me would be a nightmare to try to contain a pandemic. Whereas, and they they don't legally have athletic dorms anymore. But folks, I'm going to tell you they have athletic dorms right. <laughs> right. where the athletes live and where they eat and then kind of where they practice and, and where, where they're kind of contained. I mean, they're actually safer there than they would be at home and definitely they'd be safer and less prone to exposure than they would be walking around with the general student body and campus. So I understand from an optic standpoint, they're like, Oh, cause they're still trying to pretend like, you know, Oh, you know, you know, Chiefs, you know, Chiefs and old Jed are just going to take the, take their letter jackets off and go strap on the leather helmet and play on the polo grounds today. We're going to beat old state. You chap, don't you say yes. He's going to go back to the Sigma Psi house and we're going to have a social and have ice cream and bourbon and kiss our girls and put our letters on their sweater. <laughs> I mean, some of these people still think that's what it is. Guess what? It's not. <laughs> they're, they're not just coming out of the student body going to fight over old state. You won't you say old chap? Oh yes. You know, um, it's, it's a, like it or not, a multi-billion-dollar enterprise, and and so at some point they're just going to have to admit, look, we got to make the money. You know, we we got to bring these guys back, um, and and then I think, you know, what they need to do is just admit too that look, bringing student athletes back, they are at less risk of exposure to this, the less people they have around them. So to me, it would make more sense to say. All right, student athletes come on campus, select few classes like labs and stuff can be in person, but we're going hardcore distance learning this semester because I, I just, to me, it, 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 it's a nightmare. It would be a night, more of a nightmare trying to contain something like this on a college campus than it would be, I think, at a concert or a sporting event, which is a three-hour deal where people are together, you know, students, campuses are crowded, disgusting, 
places with young people that, you know, ah, the laissez-faire. So, you know, that's the problem I had with his comments is, you know, and then, of course, he's going to look down on everybody else and talk about, oh, I, I don't think that they're going to have sports either. Well, yeah, you know, some people recognize this. Maybe Michigan is one of the few schools in the country that can could survive this and, and be fine because it is, like I said, the largest publicly funded research institution in America, and their academics are outstanding. University of Michigan is an outstanding institution of higher learning and, and, and big endowment, tons of alums. But, uh, you know, the rest of every, everybody else may not be able to, and, and I think it's it's a shame uh, that he continued to, to repeat those talking points and, you know, try to kind of poo-poo on everybody else. Well, and everybody ran with that quote, right? Yeah. And say, I told you, I told you, see, somebody here says we're not going to play football. Everybody, the people that are cherry-picking uh, who is – truly to be trusted in this and, and who is not, whose words carry more weight. Uh, do you think there's any chance we don't have football at Michigan this year? You think the big 10 is going to play a season but Michigan is just going to sit out and they're going to like, just, just go ahead and punt on the entire season. Yeah, I don't believe I, that's going to happen. Jim Harbaugh said he'd be perfectly comfortable coaching a game with no fans. If it's in front of no fans or not play, I would choose to play in front of no fans. And that's what we've always said. Uh, of course. And the fact of the matter is, well, well, Michigan is a great institution and maybe could continue to, to ride it out with no kids on campus. And what most of these schools, they can't financially survive without kids in classrooms. Forget about, forget about athletics for a minute. Universities, it's no secret, they've never been more expensive. It's never been more expensive for a kid to go to college, okay? And the fact of the matter is, Johnny and Johnny's parents, Johnny the non-scholarship athlete and Mr. and Mrs. Johnny, they're not going to spend 50 grand on nothing but online courses with no environment on campus, with no student interaction, with no professor interaction, with nothing but Zoom classes every day. I'm not giving you my $50,000 a year for that. Uh, universities would lose hundreds of millions of dollars if there weren't kids on camp. I mean, at some point, again, you can't just do everything on a Zoom call. You, you actually have to have a college resembling a college, a university resembling a university. And so, um, trust me, they know the bottom line too. So much is talked about, well, I mean, athletics just needs to have football because of the money. Colleges need kids on campus because of the money. Mm-hmm. They, they can't all just rely on endowments and state tax money if they're not actually having classes on campus. So I, I think that's all coming together now. Uh, and you just have to be smarter about things. And people are, that maybe weren't, aren't used to solving problems are going to have to start trying to solve problems. Yeah. You know? I mean, yeah, Ohio State's athletic director, they're modeling 20,000 at the horseshoe. You know, this guy, and, you know, a lot, of, a lot of athletic departments across the country are modeling out how can you have some crowds and be safe, who gets the tickets, who gets in, what's the plan, you know, as far as that goes. And look, like we've said from the beginning, it's not going to be ideal. But you just don't care. I mean, you can't cancel the season. I mean, that, that's that's ridiculous. And that's that's not even tiptoeing into, like, what this virus has become, the actual data and numbers on it, who it affects. Um, let's just say it's not the Ebola virus, okay? <laughs> it's not Ebola, folks. And, uh, you know, I, I, I understand – 
the reasoning behind the measures we've taken. Um, but I do think that with certain public health experts and certain people, the, the football has been, the, the, the goalpost has been moved a bit. Um, and look, you, 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 people have to, it's America and you're free not to go to a college football game if you're at risk. Um, and all that. So I, I just think that, um, you know, not even touching any of that, that uh, they, they have to have a football season based on all those things we talked about. He is JC Sherbert. I am Mike Morgan. You're listening to JC and Morgan, the podcast coming up, uh, our one-on-one or two-on-one, everyone look at an interview with Chris Doring of uh, the SEC Network, uh, Sirius XM Radio, of course, former All-American wide receiver at the University of Florida uh, before taking on an NFL career and has done uh, great work on uh, on TV since then. I, I love the show, the post-game show with he and uh, Gene Chizik, uh, along with Dari Noka. I think it's the best post-game show we've got out there. And again, you get long-form highlights of of every SEC game each and every mm-hmm. Saturday. And Chris is able to provide a little bit of a, a different perspective as a former player. I hate saying that sometimes JC, because we just assume that all former players are, are sharing the same brain. And <laughs> you and I have done sports talk shows for, for years on end. And every now and then, you know, I'd, I'd work with a former player and he would have an opinion and, and it would differ from mine. Someone would say, well, he's the former player. I was like, well, I could find a hundred players that disagree with his mm, opinion. Yeah. <laughs> so when do we, we, when do we elect him the most superior opinion of any of the former players? Um, not all former players will agree on this, but one thing I keep hearing, whether it's the interview that we'll play for you with Chris Doring or other players, 99% of them want to play. Um, 99% of them are not saying, Oh, I just, I just don't know. Uh, maybe I'm going to sit this one out. They want to play. Uh, and coaches who are certainly more susceptible at their age than 18 to 22 year olds, they want to coach and administrators want to administer. Like, and people are ready to get back. Uh, you know, the, the working our way back to normal, not only applies in everyday life, but it applies in athletics as well. And uh, we'll touch upon that. We'll touch upon a number of different things that, uh, that he's been talking about and just kind of get his take and, and his opinion on things um we've talked about some of the numbers recently there is a time like i I saw a poll today uh top 100 storylines of the upcoming college football season i I saw another one on uh, 100 100 storylines wow yeah well i mean that's kind of being generous the the way they did it if they did a list of the top 10, whatever, that would be numbers 21 through 30. So it's, you know, they, whatever, one way or another, they were going to get, they were going to get to 100. <laughs> they were going to get to 100, but uh, yeah, that one's on, uh, cause we're just under 100 days out. So they came up with basically a hundred storylines. It's uh, what Chip Patterson of CBSSports.com. Uh, I mentioned the the Mark Schlebaugh article on ESPN.com. You've got a number of lists out there. I mean, for example, uh, this is from your outlet, JC twenty four seven Sports. I, I found this interesting. Uh, most difficult schedules in college football. Most daunting schedules. Yeah. I get number fifteen on. I know, I know. We do it every year, and it's these, these don't always. I don't always agree with these, but yeah. Well, if, if, I'll just and I wasn't gonna. We don't need to get into this fodder here in late May during it's, a pandemic. It's, but list, it's list season. It is list season. List season, Mike. And, and thankfully, we haven't had to resort to that. But this particular list has Maryland number one, 
toughest uh, schedule. Maryland. Maryland. Well, because they've got to go through the gauntlet. That division's ridiculous. The division's ridiculous. So you got Ohio State, Penn State, Michigan, Michigan State. Uh, so and, that and Indiana was a Gator Bowl team last that's year. That's right. That's right. And really, I mean, hats off to Indiana, by the way. Gosh, that's <laughs> a know? great, great coaching job. Great coaching yeah. job. Uh, Michigan State two, Penn State three. You get the idea. This is very heavily. Uh, geared toward Big Ten. Oh, like. oh yeah. I'm not, I'm well, not number, sure. four, number four is South Carolina. Number four is South Carolina. Number five is Arkansas. Here comes the SEC. Uh, number six, Georgia Tech, because they got to go at a conference against Notre Dame. Notre Dame and Georgia. And Georgia, of course. Notre Dame, they play in Atlanta. Number seven, Ole Miss. So you get the idea. It's, it's basically it's, it's it's the Big Ten SEC list is what it I is. Think, I think you know Maryland. Look, Towson State obviously is not great, um, but you got Northern Illinois, who's a you know they they can upset you, and then you play they play at West Virginia. Uh, that may be one of those games, Mike, that's at the Redskins Stadium, and, and the list I have just isn't showing it. But but listen to this. So. Everything's going along swimmingly. Okay, so they got they've got Wisconsin and Northwestern and Minnesota from the other division. So you've got two of the best teams from the other division in Wisconsin and Minnesota, and then you go at Northwestern. And then after Halloween, when you get it, when you get to play Rutgers, here's how it goes at Michigan, Ohio State and College Park, at Penn State, and then Michigan State and College Park. <laughs> That's the ultimate. I mean, what did five fingers say to the face? Smack. Oh my God. <laughs> so I, I can kind of, I can get behind Maryland being, being really a, a difficult one. This particular season. And of course, that'll be the job of uh, Mike Loxley, former Nick Saban uh, disciple, who's the head coach in Maryland, who will always feel like an ACC school to me, but they're in the big 10. Uh, I forgot what number I finished out on, but basically it's all with the exception yeah. of Georgia tech, the entire top 10 is basically all sec big 10. Then you have to go all the way to 13 to find a non, another non big 10 sec school. And that's Southern Cal. Cause again, Southern Cal has Notre Dame, um, Bama and, and Alabama in week one, which it looks like we are going to have. Remember, there was all the talk about that game being traded out that yeah. Southern Cal wasn't going to be able to travel to Arlington and play Alabama, and maybe Alabama would trade TCU. But I don't think any of that's going to happen. I think that game's going to be played. As I, I, I do too. There's a there's a sort of an interesting bunch of speculation uh, type of article out there by Kirk McNair, twenty four seven Sports today that uh, talked about if they did go with nothing but. Uh, conference games, which I can't see. I'm going to say this again. I don't see it happening. No. But it had Bama opening with Florida. Ooh. Instead of instead of Southern Cal. And then they played Florida, South Carolina, Kentucky, Missouri. And then their games against the West. I mean, was this based on any type of you know, discussion, I, serious I, discussion. I've read, you know, that's a, there was talk about that for a while. They're talking mean, about an eight game conference eight game only conference schedule. Only, not and just 12. play. Yeah. You're not going to play. Well, no way. It's brutal. It's intriguing, but it's brutal. It's a, yeah. It's, it's intriguing. It's just but not it's realistic. Brutal. But, um, so I saw that, but no, I think that game in Arlington is going to go off. Maybe not in front of a lot of fans. Um, 
And then I don't know how the financials with that. I think those, th- those neutral site games are basically made for TV events. I would mm-hmm. guess, um, you know, and, and then they're cash grabs. I, I, I hope we kind of get away with that away from that. I'd rather have home and homes, Yeah, you know, but, but the, the, the money right now it's, it's high enough where they're going to keep happening. Yeah, we're going to find out about uh, SC pretty quick next year. Uh, they play Bama, then the home game against the Lobos of New Mexico. But then they go at Stanford, Arizona State comes to L.A., and then at Utah. So by, by the 1st of October, Mike, we will again be either talking about how, hey, the Trojans may be a contender, or we'll again put Clay Helton on hot seat watch, which – yeah, that guy's survived, man. <laughs> He's a survivor. Yeah, he is. Uh, to his credit. And, um, you know, we'll see kind of what happens there. But I think I think we're going to learn a lot about uh, the Trojans uh, by the time early October gets here. I think Clay Helton's a classic example of if you want to add to your job security, it always helps to be a nice guy. Yeah. It, it helps to be good to people. Uh, we, we've learned you can be a colossal prick if you keep winning – uh, you'll be tolerated for a long, long time, but you better, you're not getting the benefit of the doubt. If you start losing, he hasn't, he hasn't met the bar there, but I think most people, the consensus is they like Clay Hilton. Like Clay yeah. Hilton's a good dude and they, they like him. They, they want him to work out much like Ole Miss fans wanted Matt Luke to work out. Arkansas fans wanted Brett Bielema to, to work out because they're, they're fun, good dudes, guys you'd want to have a beer with. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, that only goes so far. Yeah, you got to win eventually. But, yeah, there's nobody that says said anything negative to me about Clay Helton in all of coaching or really any recruits, players, parents, nobody. I mean, I hear nothing bad about him as a person. But you got to win, and you have a lot of standards at, at SC. And, and for that conference, too, they need SC to come back. I think the other thing about it is, too, if you look at last year, you're kind of sniffing around with Urban Meyer. I think maybe the chances of them landing an Urban Meyer or Urban Meyer himself maybe get a little bit higher the more time he has between coaching stops. You know what I'm saying? Because mm-hmm. so he can get some R&R in. Um, so maybe that's it too, but I, I don't know. Every time they have a coach's opening, we, we see a list of names. It's a million miles long. It always has Jack Del Rio on it. And, um, <laughs> and then, and then they end up hiring somebody that's from the Pete Carroll coaching tree or the Lane Kiffin coaching tree as right. places well, place is out. And speaking of Lane Kiffin, listen to this. We're talking about tough schedules. Listen to Ole Miss. I didn't realize this, Mike. I, I guess I've spent so much time worrying if there's going to be a season. I haven't thought about the season enough. Listen to this. They open with Baylor in Houston. Baylor's a pretty good football team, right? Even though they got a new coach in Dave Miranda. Sure. Pretty good football team. Southeast Missouri State. There's Lane, arguably Lane's first or second win. Then Auburn at home, at LSU, and then Bama at home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that's number seven on the list and yeah. I them a little high. are they below arkansas arkansas plays notre dame 
Arkansas is five on the list. But I think I think playing hey, we're in a rabbit hole now. We're, yeah. we're starting to bench debate know. seven versus yeah, five. Like, come on, what a random yeah. tough uh, yeah. let's, get, let's get the Chris Dory. <laughs> oh, let's go ahead and get to the interview. Let me tell you about BP Skinner Clothiers before we start debating the merits of who's number nine on a random strength of schedule poll here in late May during a pandemic. <laughs> BP Skinner Clothiers, BP Skinner Clothiers.com. They've got you set with customers custom suits, casual clothes, accessories. True story. I had someone, uh, a, a friend of mine's wife noticed some of the suits that I was wearing this year from one Brent Skinner said that her husband, uh, needed, he's a, he's actually a former, uh, kicker or punter. I can't remember at Arkansas. Mm. And so he's a bigger set guy and, you know, unique for unique shape, whatever. I uh, said, you know, I, I I want him to look good for his, for Father's Day. I want to do something different, not just get cologne. I want to go ahead and get him some of those custom suits that look so good. Uh, and she said, but I live in, you know, we live in D.C. I said, that's okay. Brent will come to you. He does it all the time. He's got clients in the Northeast. He's got coaches, players, broadcasters uh, in that neck of the woods. So. Go ahead and get a couple jacket suits, whatever, custom-made shirts. He'll do it. So she, Brent just picked up another client. That's Very often, that's the way it works. People see how good it looks. You hear me talking about it. Uh, believe you me, I wouldn't be talking about it if I didn't believe so much in it. So go ahead and spoil yourself. Spoil yourself now that we're uh, getting back to normal. Normal means uh, that that pair of sweatpants you've been wearing for the last eight weeks might be time to put those in the fire pit and wear some nice clothes. Uh, at some point, you might even have a presentation where they can not only see you from the neck up on a Zoom call, but maybe even in person where you need to look good. Go ahead and give Brent a shout. The website is bpskinnerclothiers.com, and uh, you can set up an appointment. Again, he'll come to you. That's Brent Skinner. Mention you heard about it on JC and Morgan. He'll full, throw in a free custom-made shirt with the purchase of a suit or sports coat that's like a $200 value. Take advantage of it now. Uh, I'm just going to say before we get to the Doring interview, which was great, can't thank Chris enough. Um, I've been uh, People say they appreciate these updates. Sometimes I wonder. I don't offer a ton of my personal life, not because I'm guarded, but because I just feel like my personal life is pretty boring. You know, I, I, I broadcast games for a living, and then other than that, I do what, what Every day Joe does, right? How exciting is that? But I think people are curious because not everybody listening, you know, you're in Chicago. Uh, your, your mayor, thankfully, is much different than our governor. Um, although our mayor might be good friends with your mayor because our mayor and our governor don't agree on much of anything. But people in North Atlanta, like myself, we listen more to our governor than the mayor on how to, how to live life and how to get through these times. Um, regardless of all that, uh, I've been just kind of giving updates on what, what I've been doing over the last month. Of course, uh, you know, a month and a half ago, took, took my one and only plane ride during this pandemic, wore a mask, wore gloves. The uh, plane was nearly empty. Uh, but uh, girlfriend and I got through unscathed. Um, I have been to two beaches, uh, social distancing in, in both situations. I have played golf. I have gotten a haircut. I have uh, finally gotten through my dental appointment for a cleaning, which obviously is unique. They took right away, you know, the scan, the forehead, make sure I don't have a fever. Uh, she wore a mask. Eventually, you're not going to be able to wear a mask if you've got somebody with their uh, tools in your mouth. 
Um, and, uh, what else have I done? That's, uh, uh, not unique, but, but kind of getting out there a little bit. Uh, I've been on the lake, Lake Lanier here near Atlanta, I've been on a boat. Um, when I go to the grocery store, I wear a mask, but when I'm outside, I typically don't. When I go outside to walk Baxter, I'm not wearing a mask. Um, and, uh, based on, the, the data and the science and everything else that I've uh, picked up on seems okay. My girlfriend got a test here in Atlanta, COVID-19 test. There's like a drive-through. You don't, you don't have to leave your car. They just give you a swab in your mouth, I believe. And, uh, and you're done in 10 minutes. And they gave her results a week later. She tested negative. Um so, and I only know again, two people so far during this, and I've got friends, uh, in various parts of the country. I have a, a news anchor friend in Memphis that got it two weeks later. He was back at work. He's in his forties. I have a neighbor who's in his seventies and got it in South Africa. And again, with his age group, he was in a bad way for a couple of weeks. He is now completely healed and fine. I don't say all this to recommend anything, uh, to persuade or dissuade, I'm just telling you what life is like for one person living in Atlanta in a state that has been opened up now for over a month where the numbers, much like they are in Florida since they opened up, are precipitously down in terms of percentage of positive cases, percentage of people that have been forced to be, uh, to ho- be uh, hospitalized. So that is, uh, that is one man's perspective, JC. Wish I could say the same thing um, about, <laughs> you know, Illinois being stuck here. I think um, I've said a lot about it. I will say this. Uh, the one good thing they did that we, uh, we kind of live in a rural area, um, you know, while I'm here, uh, stuck here with my girlfriend while this thing is going on. Um, and uh, so we have a little, a little bar we like to go to. It's kind of like a the neighborhood dive, I guess, called the tavern. Um, and uh, they're allowing them to have outdoor seating coming up. fresco, yeah. So uh, that happens Friday, and it, it, it's apparently a big, big holiday here in yeah. Homer Glen, Illinois. Like, uh, Good gr- girlfriend's you. taking a half day off. I mean, we're going to go celebrate. So it's <laughs> it's uh, – I guess that's one good thing, but um, – you know, I, I, I'll admit I had a little bit of some, I had some questions when Atlanta started opening up or Georgia started opening up with, with the, the salons and the gyms and all that. And I was like, huh, maybe that's a little, a little too soon on all and, that. And but yeah, but honestly, the, the numbers, had, like you said, they flatlined and gone up a little bit here and there, but flatlined and continue to decrease in Florida and Georgia, both mean, meanwhile, in Illinois, you know, there's no downward trend. So I don't, yeah, I don't know what to think. I don't know that everybody wants to scream science, science, science all the time. Well, what's, what's the science telling us with these numbers? Yes. Well, some people want to scream science if it fits their narrative and their overall prerogative and ignore the other science, but that's a whole other uh, discussion. But, uh, but yeah, now I think youth sports are about to start taking place in the state of Florida. Good. Uh, so, uh, and as you mentioned, Disney World's going to be opening up in July, and we are closer and closer to having a college football season. But you've been, uh-huh. if you've been listening to this podcast, uh, would not surprise you as much because, uh, again, honestly, there were certainly times I was worried about it. But the more and more 
uh, things came down the pike, the more and more I was convinced we were going to have a season. And as we sit here in late May, barring some catastrophic occurrence and knock on wood, that will not happen. And all prayers to be told that will not happen. Um, we're going to go forward and there will be certain problems in all likelihood that that'll have to be addressed when they, when they occur. Uh, but I don't think it'll be enough to completely cancel an entire season. All right. Uh, Chris Doring, SEC Network, Sirius XM. You know him. You love him. Here's JC and I talking to him. Okay. We are uh, happy to continue our guest parade uh, around the SEC here this week. We're going to be talking with uh, Chris Doring in uh, just a moment. Uh, Chris Doring, I guess now many people, the, the millennials don't know this guy uh, is tied for the all-time touchdown reception lead in SEC history. I think Amari Cooper finally tied him. Did not pass him. Uh, Amari might have put, did Amari play in more games than you? What's the total games? I'm trying to give you the benefit of the doubt here, Chris. I mean, I'd love to bring, you know, let, let's, let's talk about it. Touchdowns per, per game. Is that a better yeah, measurable yeah. for me? I don't are know. You, are you ahead of him on that? Do you know? I don't know that, but I can tell you this will be the last time we talk about me having part of that record because Jamar <laughs> Chase is going to absolutely destroy it this year as mm. uh, he comes back for another season in Baton Rouge. What, how many does he have? How many is the, is the record? Uh, 31 is the uh, is the record that Amari and I share. And uh, the I think, I want to say, what did he end up with? Like 20 last year or so? 20, that, 21? And, and just sounds one about season right. Alone? Yeah, yeah. Now, let's be honest. So these guys are playing 15 games nowadays. So right, that certainly right. helps. But uh, when I was in school, not only did we not play that many games, but they didn't count any of the postseason uh, stats either, which is weird. I don't know why they don't go back and count those, you know, in hindsight. But, I've said uh, that for years. I mean, Barry Sanders is another guy. None of his postseason stats counted. It's ridiculous. This is not yeah. that hard to go back in the record books. Sometimes I wonder how college football, as great as it is, how it got to where it is, because it's in the leadership. It's just been a rudderless ship for so long. We had split titles. We couldn't have grant a playoff. We couldn't keep records properly. And somehow, some way, uh, it's still the best thing on earth. But uh, when Chris Doring played it, he was uh, one of the best receivers on earth back at Florida, former walk-on at a PK. Uh, J.C. Sherbert, how, how many stars do you think Chris Doring would have had <laughs> as a walk-on uh, PK Young High School in Gainesville? Like class of what, 1989? 91. 91 was my high school class. 91 high school class? I don't know. Probably if I'd have seen him at a camp though, because I remember him playing and I remember this cat could run routes and catch and was deceptively fast. And I will never forget the 93 Kentucky game in Lexington for as long as I live. It was one of the greatest catches in Gator history. You know, even when Steve Spurrier was up at South Carolina, he used to talk about that game all the time. So I, I may have given him four stars or so. You know, you, you never know. I hate to be. I, I, I would have like loved that. that. I appreciate <laughs> that. I, I, I think I'm one of these. I kind of believe. You know, it's uh, I'm one of these that kind of thinks outside the box. But yeah, it was it was a different time back then, man, because people didn't have tape. They he's kind of I guess you had VHS or, or whatever and yeah now it's all digital it's all right there so uh, I, I the, the folks that did it back then way before me um, I have a lot of respect for because that was definitely a, an inexact science back in those days information is definitely shared much more easily and rapidly now uh, I would have loved to have the chance to have the camps that these guys go to you know I always went to the Florida 
uh, Gator football camp. But at the time, it was that was more like a sleepaway thing where you go, you stay in the dorms. It's just a you know you're out there swimming in the pool during the day. Like it wasn't <laughs> wasn't as competitive as it is now. I would love to have had the chance because to your point, I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna shock anybody with a, a great forty time. I didn't look physically all that imposing, but in terms of being able to run routes and catch the ball, that's something I've always been able to do and would have loved to have the chance to show folks that coming out of high school. You would have torn torn a seven on seven up back then. Thinking about how you were then. And as a player, I think that the the seven on seven thing, which is big these days, I think you'd have torn that completely. You know, the best part about seven on seven is, is that you you don't get hit either. I mean, that's the thing that's uh, nice about that. You know, just go up and get it. Yeah. (laughs) Nowadays in college football and the NFL, you don't get hit either. So (laughs) if you do, you get ejected from the game. That's right. 15 yard penalty. Yeah. Uh, I think it was Max M finger. And those are the guys heading recruiting. Yeah, I think Tom, Lemming, Max Tom Lemming, you know, I remember used to be blue chips, like blue chip guys, yeah. red chip guys, whatever. So need to say you weren't on a lot of those lists. I, I wasn't a chip. I didn't have any stars. I was, I was nothing. And people ask me all the time, like, why'd you walk on in Florida? Like I didn't have any offers anywhere else. I mean, literally the only thing that I had was a scholar, a walk on a preferred walk on offer from Florida and a preferred walk on offer from Florida state. And in my mind, you know, I felt like growing up in Gainesville with two parents that went to the university of Florida and, and being at all the games my whole life that in my mind, I had it figured out. I was going to be a, uh, an all-star player at PK young, which is part of the university of Florida's college of education. And I was going to move across the street and play football for the Gators. And I felt like the Gators, let me down on, on that plan that they knew nothing about. Um, and so for a minute, minute there, I actually thought about going to Florida state and taking them up on that walk on offer. Wow. Could have been playing with uh, a different Heisman trophy winner, Charlie Ward. Yeah. You know what though? Here's the thing. You, you guys know this. There's very few people that are willing to give walk-ons the opportunity that coach Furrier did, you know, coach Furrier didn't care if you were a walk-on didn't care if you were a five-star guy, he wanted guys that played the way they were coached and were in great condition. And uh, I, I, remember one of the, the first days on campus leading up to you know my freshman year in, in fall practice, we had the conditioning test, which was a 12 minute run. And one of the things that coach Breer really put a lot of emphasis on and uh, for skilled players, you had to run, I want to say it was, I want to say it was seven laps. So a mile and three quarters in under 12 minutes. And I did it in like nine minutes and one easily. And from that moment on coach Breer uh, always appreciated you know, my competitiveness and, and my ability to, to run and be in great shape like that. And it worked out pretty well for you. And then I played for seemingly half the NFL. Uh, you have a Jersey from. Yeah. It's, <laughs> my dad said uh, famously that it would probably be better if he just had a, a sweatshirt with a Velcro and you could just take one team off with the <laughs> other one on because uh, a lot of money invested in different That's shirts right. and sweaters and everything else supporting the teams. Yeah. I played for. Well, anybody can play their whole career for one team. You get more swag. If you spread it out, have a cup of coffee with like 12 different teams. Yeah. I got, a, I got a lot of swag. Certainly I was yeah. up in as part of the quarantine we're all been clearing out our, our, you know, closets and everything else. I mean, it has been ridiculous. The stuff that I've found, I've got a ton of of gear from all over, but I also have, you know, I feel really bad about this. And I mentioned this on my show. I found so many letters from people. I assume that were kids at the time that are probably grown men right now Mm. that asked me to sign cards that I didn't get back to them. That that asked me to sign sports illustrated. I didn't get back to them. So I've actually reached out to some, on uh on on facebook and other social media uh outlets 
And I think these people are shocked that I'm, I'm getting in touch with them right now. I, I think they have zero interest in having a signed Chris Doring <laughs> card or picture now, but I at least am feeling better about getting back, albeit uh, 20 years later. That's awesome. You know, I, I think we can all relate to that. We've all had obviously more time than we normally would. And, and to say I've done house cleaning would be the understatement of the world. I've thrown away a bunch of stuff, uh, given away a bunch of stuff to Goodwill, whatever. But one of the things I've done that I always said I would do and, and just kept it off is I've, I, you know, I keep my credentials for every game I've worked. I did the same thing. Yep. And, and it, it's, it's gotten to the point where it's, it's literally over a thousand. So, I mean, they're all, they, they were just in boxes. They were just sitting in boxes. I put a, a taped a few up in the basement years ago. And then eventually those went in the boxes. I said, you know what? I'm finally going to do something with this because there's no point in the keeping in boxes, either throw them away or do something with it. So I try to pick like my top 50 to hundred credentials of games that I've worked in either football, basketball, or baseball and tape them up in the, in the, uh, the home office. And one of the ones I came across, and, and even though it's not a huge game on paper, I taped it up is a game that you and I worked. Uh, for those that don't know, I mean, Chris Doring now, you can catch him on satellite radio, SEC channel 374, does the morning show with Peter Burns. Great show. I'm on there as a guest from time to time. You guys are, are very entertaining. Listen to And my favorite show, uh, College Game Day on ESPN is my favorite show. It's, it's how I get Saturday morning started. And then my favorite show to watch at night is, is typically the post-game show you do with Chiz, uh, uh, and Dari Noka, and we'll get back to that later. But but before you did all that, one of the things you did, you were doing uh, color commentary for what was basically the the forerunner to the SEC Network. But at that time, it was SEC Network, but just on syndication as opposed to its own cable channel. And you and I did some games together, yeah. and we did two Alabama games that year. This was uh, Nick Saban's second or third national championship. It's hard to keep track. Uh, and the first game we did, I believe, was against Western Kentucky, and Willie Taggart was the coach. Yeah. Bring it all back to the, the mighty Willie Taggart. But I just remember, I don't know how you felt about that. So I, I'd seen Saban maybe even ask him a question or two at SEC Media Days. That was the extent of what I knew it was like to be in the same room with Nick Saban. And those that don't know, the, 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 the uh, announcers, we go to the home team's uh, practice facility, stadium, what have you. Uh, the day before. So that Friday we go and we sit and we meet with head coach, offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, and usually a couple of players. One of the players, by the way, was Barrett Jones, another guy I worked with yeah. an actual SEC network uh, channel. And so you and I go in there and I'm sure you, you were, you heard the same stories I did or had the same maybe image of, boy, this Saban guy is going to be a piece of work. He's going to chew us up. We're going to ask a question. We're going to get that evil stink eye, and he's going to kick us out. And I'm just thinking, you know what? I can't be afraid. I'm just going to do this like I would do any other coach. And when people ask you what it was, what it was like in that meeting with Saban, I tell him he could have been nicer. Like yeah. he, he was great with us. Do you remember that? Do, do you, I do. You, ever I do. And you know what? One of the biggest memories of that is, and going to Alabama is how they treated us with dreamland barbecue after That's we right. with all that. Yes. And that was a, that was a was huge nice. uh, a way to, to kind of get you ingratiated to the, the Alabama program. But I will say, you know, I always had at the time, or fear uh, and intimidation of, of sitting in with Nick Saban just because of all he's accomplished and the things that you mentioned that he, he's done in the past at press conferences. 
But he comes in and he's, he's not all that tall, as we all know. I mean, you and I are both taller than him. Right. He sits down and barely speaks over a whisper, but it's this command that he has in that room where you're just kind of hanging on every word that he's saying. And so you know, I probably had you know, a handful of meetings like that doing Alabama games over the years, multiple chances to interview him on radio and television. And I still think he's the most intimidating guy that I, that I get the chance to talk to. And uh, I don't know if it's because I, I build him up so much because of all of his accomplishments or some of what we've seen him do with other, other uh, press outlets. But I, I do think that that is probably one of the, the things that gets my heart racing the most. And when, when you actually get him going on a question, you feel maybe the most sense of accomplishment uh, when, when you feel like you hit a home run with a good question. Yeah, it's true. And you feel as, as that was going on and on, and I don't know how many minutes we had with him total, maybe a half hour, give or take. Uh, but that after the first few minutes settled in and you realize he actually was listening to your question and being attentive and not shooting you down. Like, you know, you don't belong. Cause you kind yeah. of feel like, as you said, not a big guy, but you feel like you're like a young mobster trying to be a made guy. And the Godfather just walked in the room and yeah. you're, you're watching your P's and Q's making sure your you know, your shoes are shined or whatever. And then all of a sudden after 10, 15 minutes, like he's pretty cool. Like this, yeah. is, this, this is no big thing. This is good stuff. Yeah, no doubt. I agree with you there. I do have to, before we move on, I have to note one of the other big games that you and I did together was back at my alma mater and we were not thinking it was going to be an exciting game. I want to say it was like homecoming or something in Florida's playing Louisiana and all of a sudden, Florida find themselves down in that football game. They're on the yes. big beat, and they end up getting a big block punt for the, the game-tying touchdown or the game-winning touchdown, whatever it was. That's right. And so I, I've actually seen some social media posts and heard your voice and my voice on there. <laughs> I never would have imagined that we would have gained some sort of uh, – some notoriety calling a right. Florida Louisiana game, but we actually, uh, that was one of the more memorable ones you and I did together. I do remember that they played the call. I think it was on sports center, one of the sec shows. And, uh, and, and it was a dramatic come from behind win by Florida to beat the mighty raging Cajuns. But again, that was synonymous with the Will Muschamp era in, in Gainesville. Like everything. You remember was, the quarterback in that game? Jeff Driscoll, right? Jacoby right. Brissett. Oh, that's right. Driscoll uh, was hurt. Yeah, I think that's right. Jacoby Brissett was the one that I think that was in the, in the ball game late. Yeah. As I right. remember that. You're right. Yeah. 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 Driscoll, I, I think Driscoll got banged up, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> you never know when you go into some of these games, you never know what they're, they're going to turn out to be. And it's funny to think now, I mean, now Will Muschamp's the head coach at South Carolina. We mentioned Willie Taggart before when he was coaching Western Kentucky against Bama, he goes to Oregon, then FSU. And now he's at FAU talk about a mighty fall from grace, but, uh, uh, it is interesting to see how things can turn out. Chris, uh, you know, we, we've known each other quite some time. I've been happy to see your career progress. And one of the things all three of us have in common is, I mean, we are desperately hoping to get to college football. It gives us a, a chance to do what we, we do best, and that is cover the sport one way or another. And it looks like we're on our way. Uh, the S- I, I, I don't know about you, but I have felt like everybody's been looking t- toward Greg Sankey and the SEC to see what they're doing to figure out what they should do. Uh, and that might sound like an SEC arrogant Homerism statement, but it just, it is what it is. That's and, nothing new though. I mean, that, that's right. been the way things have gone for a long time, even outside of the pandemic, the way that Correct. the SEC has been the forerunner, even with the, 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 the conference championship game in 92, the way that, right. that things have, have, they've always been the leader here, at least over the last couple of decades. 
And I think Greg Sankey is as good a leader as there is in, in, in sports, college or pro. And I think people really value uh, his opinion and just how smart and thoughtful he is with the way that he goes about making big decisions. Well, and, and, and there's just no panic in him. And I go back to, uh, you know, we're, we're talking March 12th. I'm at the SEC tournament. He is there, and it's on that fateful day, it's the second round, and he is the last conference commissioner to just jump to, okay, well, the NBA canceled, so now we have to cancel. Why not wait till all the data's in? Why not wait till the last possible second that you have to make that decision? Because at the end of the day, it, it is important. To, those players wanted to play. I don't care what anybody tells you. I was there. Those players were not scared. They were not if they wanted to play. Uh, now, in the retrospect, in 2020 hindsight, it was the right call. But everybody wanted to see that, that event go on. And everybody wants to see college football go on. But here's my first question for you about all this. And it does relate a little bit to, to what we're talking about with Greg Sankey. So you've had a lot of people out there that cover this sport. And I'm not going to mention names because, I, I, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not here to, to criticize people who, who cover the sport. But a lot of them a month ago, six weeks ago, two months ago, three weeks ago, were so quick to tell you, oh, I, I, don't th- I don't see how we're going to have a season. I mean, there's too much complications. The, what if this happens? What if that happens? I just don't see a point. And on this podcast, and, and you know, we're not <laughs> – nobody's paying us to tell you that there's going to be a season or keep it positive. I, I just always thought there was way too premature to say any of those things. And that was yeah. Greg Sankey's point. Like, why am I going to make a decision in late April to cancel the season? Let's let it play out first. And sure enough – uh, now everybody's got the players reporting back. I think Oklahoma will be the last one on July 1st. The SEC will be June 8th. We're going to have a season. And I, I guess my question is, as someone who's part of the coverage, but you also, like me, you read a lot, you listen to a lot, what's been the most frustrating part of the coverage for you when you hear people that were already waving the white flag on 2020 football? Uh, what's been the most frustrating thing you've seen or heard? Uh, I agree with you. I mean, I think this idea that we have to make a decision so far in advance, especially as we're dealing with something that we really have no frame of reference on how to deal with or what things are going to look like. So I really do think every day we learn more about it and we're able to, to figure out how to manage it better until we have a vaccine. Like I, I can't tell you how many shows that I've done over the last 60 days where people ask me if I think we're going to have football, like, I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I don't, I don't make these decisions. Would I like to have football? Yeah, I would love to. I think certainly signs are pointing in that right direction. And, and I think getting the athletes back on campus June 8th uh, is maybe the most important step at this point in time. It looks a lot different than it did, you know, 30, 45 days ago. I think we were really worried about how long it was going to take those guys to be able to get back to, to campus. And I, I'll tell you this, I'm glad they're getting that much lead time because I was really concerned about soft tissue injuries and this idea if you don't lay the foundation, if you're not out there being well-conditioned and doing, you know, higher reps and, and, and your, your lifts and, and, and really building a foundation you know, to try to throw guys in and have them all of a sudden sprinting and cutting and doing some of the things they probably haven't been doing a lot of, you open yourself up for a lot of, of injury potential. So I'm glad that um, there was a lot of thought, around doing what's right by the student athletes and giving them time to come in and reacclimate. But I, I guess, again, to, to re, uh, reaffirm the thing that has me most frustrated is just this idea that we have to make decisions about things that are so far down the road. Like even, even in, what was it? California was saying they weren't going to be able to host games in the month of September. Like why are we making that decision 
in May when we have a number of months still to kind of see how things are progressing, you know, what kind of advances we have, what kind of uh, data we can gather from the NHL or the NBA or, 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 you know, I think UFC, that's been the great part is we've had some folks that are now forerunners that are allowing us to be able to see by, by trial and error, the best way to kind of manage this and still have sports and potentially, you know, have fans involved at some point. Well, that's the thing too. I, I mentioned, I never thought I'd quote Gordon Gee on, on one of our uh, <laughs> podcasts or in life in general, but you know, the West Virginia athletic director has been the AD at Vandy and the SEC Ohio state a couple of times. He, he went ahead and shot down yet another, the, some of the people, some of the writers out there just constantly, well, the moment that uh, one person tests positive, obviously we're going to have to shut it down. And he said, no, that's not what we have to do. You have 16,000 Division One college football players. If those 16,000 kids never played college football again, chances are in the next couple of months, at least one or two are going to test positive for COVID-19. So uh, the fact that, I mean, athletics mirrors real life. There are going to be some people ages 20, 18 to 22 that are going to test positive in the next couple of months. I've never thought that if that happens, that all of a sudden college football just shuts down entirely or an entire team forfeits. Things are going to have to be done. Extra measures are going to have to be taken. And yes, I keep using the term, uh, Chris, that the word that doesn't apply to this season is ideal. There's nothing ideal about it. Doesn't mean you have to, you know, take the ball, go home and cancel the season. Now you come at it from a former player perspective, not to mention a father of, of, of kids that are getting near uh, college age. When you look at it and think of it as a former player, what would be your biggest concern? What would be the thing that you'd be the most concerned about moving forward? And, and what would you like to see in terms of some of the logistics laid out as we get further and further to, closer to practice? You mentioned it earlier, you know, the, the, the players at the SEC basketball tournament wanted to play. I have to believe that 99% of the, the college football players, if not more, want to play. I mean, they're, they're, let's, let's be honest. You mentioned 18 to 22 year old age range. There's a, there's an air of invincibility when you're that age. Right. And even you know, the majority of the, the, the information would tell you that, you know, if they do get this virus, that it's not going to be as, as harsh on them as it is somebody that's older or has underlying health conditions. So I imagine that they feel like the risk to reward is in their favor, even if they do come back and they are exposed. I mean, there's gotta be some concern when you bring students from all over the country back into one city. I live here in Gainesville and when the students returned from spring break was the biggest flare up of, of positive tests in Alachua County. Um, you know, and then once everybody was gone, it kind of died down a little bit. So I do think there's a fear there, but I, I gotta be, I have to imagine on June 8th, when the voluntary uh, workouts uh, begin, I have to imagine that the attendance is 99% or more. Uh, I think not only is there this desire to, to play and, and, and be competitive and work towards a position, but how about just some normality for these guys that are used to playing? This is part of their life for a long period of time, not to mention they probably have better food, better accommodations, you know, better place to work out here at, at, on, on campus than they do when they're at home. And I think there's been a good argument made that the safety measures that these schools are going to be taking probably lessens their chances of, of, of catching the virus when they're here, as opposed to being wherever they're home without some of those same precautions being taken. I'm glad you mentioned, I'm going to, I'm going to make one more point then I'm going to turn it over to JC. But, uh, Pat 40, the moment that this started gaining momentum and I like Pat, I've interviewed him multiple times at SEC media days, but he was, he, he came right on on Twitter. Uh, the moment that some schools 
started to point out that they're going to uh, finish early, right? They're going to get rid of their uh, fall break and end basically before Thanksgiving. I, I think you're going to see more and more schools adopt that model, particularly colder climate schools. But Notre Dame, South Carolina, North Carolina, just some that have already done it uh, up to this point. And he said, well, you're going to, so you're going to make the college athletes stay an extra two weeks when the, when the regular students are back home. And Danny Cannell, who you and I know and, and, and have worked with, and I disagree with Danny on a lot, but Danny was spot on. He, was, he basically echoed what you just said. These kids are in, in a safer environment when they're actually in a kind of a quote-unquote controlled environment back on campus, back with uh, their coaching staff, and, and God forbid something does happen they've got the medical care that you're not going to have when they go back home in all likelihood. They're going to have the doctors right there. They're going to have the people that know what to do. They're going to have the ability to treat them right away much yeah. quicker than somebody like, oh, I don't know, me or JC, <laughs> just trying to find out uh, who we're going to go to, what we're going to do. So it was, it was such, a, in my opinion, such a lame argument by Pat and and someone like yourself or Danny Cannell, people that actually have been in a, a in that situation, in that environment where you are a true scholarship athlete, where you know that actually this might be might be better for those in order to stay safe. I think that's the, the overlying theme of, of playing college athletics is that more times than not, you're taken care of better than you are when you move on. And that includes the NFL. I mean, there were, there were places I played in the NFL that didn't have near the facilities that we had at the university of Florida. So you know, there's a lot done for you on campus, even before all of this, but from you know, taking care of getting you registered from classes. Like I, I didn't have to go through drop ad the way that other students did on, on campus back in the day, waiting in line. Uh, you talk about meals, you talk about uh, study hall and, and tutoring. I mean, everything is done to keep these athletes um, it, keep them eligible and, and to give them every opportunity to be successful. And, and that goes with the, the health side of things too. I mean, we, we talked to Greg Stringfellow, the LSU equipment manager uh, on our show the other day, and to listen to the precautions that they're going to be taking in the weight room with all of the equipment, with the, the laundry, I mean, it, it's extensive and there's a lot of thought that's been put into it. And if I'm a college athlete, I'm grateful that I have the opportunity to be protected in that little bubble the way that these guys are going to be when they return to campus. Yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's a different, different deal these days with all the medical care you get and the dietary, uh, I guess, plans they have for you. And then and you can combine that with the, the, the health precautions that they're going to take. I would argue strongly almost that if you're just looking at it from a pure student athlete safety standpoint, they're probably because you can't control the environment uh, 98% of the time when you're dealing with kids at home with brothers and sisters and parents and friends and all that, that they would be better off uh, in an athletic dorm uh, going to work out uh, with constant testing and stuff like that. If you're worried about them catching the virus. So I completely agree with you there real quick. All right. So there's a lot of different theories. I I'm of the opinion, all this talk about the sec playing only sec games, uh, is a little far-fetched because I don't think they'll be the only conference playing. But I looked at it, and, and there are some people, including uh, Kirkman there at 24-7 Sports, that wrote an article today kind of laying out, laying that out. As a player and as somebody that follows this league, what kind of bloodbath would we be looking at from a competition standpoint if they line up and play 12 league games? 
Yeah, I have a hard time believing they would do that. <laughs> and I think it would be a bloodbath. I've talked about it before. You know, my experience playing in the SEC, it's a meat grinder. I mean, mm-hmm. even just with an eight-game schedule, people don't understand. Like, you know, we, we would go play Vanderbilt in November when I was at Florida, and Vanderbilt always played us tough. You know, I mean, they had some great defenses. Woody Woodenhofer's defenses were, were a good match for, for our offenses there at Florida with, with Coach Spurrier's uh, fun and gun. Uh, but just because, you I mean, you're just so worn down and so beat up and, and, and just the physical toll and mental toll fatigue factor that takes place. Yeah. I, I have a hard time believing that would be possible. I could see them maybe playing a nine game conference schedule and your biggest rival, you know, Florida playing Florida state, uh, Clemson playing South Carolina, you get to retain some of those. It's still a regional kind of matchup. Um, but I do, I, I would have a hard time believing that they would play a, a 12 game season within the SEC because people would just be absolutely obliterated by the end of that thing. Yeah, and I think, quite frankly, all those other schools, there's a great article by Mark Schleyball, they need the money. There's some schools that simply cannot punt on football, pun intended. Uh, I think those out-of-conference games are going to happen. 60 seconds, uh, Chris, before we're going to say goodbye, and and we've got to talk a little bit about the upcoming season. It looks like Alabama's back in the driver's seat, so to speak, in terms of what they have coming back. LSU loses over a dozen guys to the NFL, not to mention all kinds of coaches and everything else. Uh, and, and then Georgia just can't seem to get over that hump. Some people are even picking Florida to win the East. Give me a quick uh, breakdown of what you see the league happening uh, going on this year. we got about 30 seconds. I do believe that, uh, that Alabama will be back in, in Atlanta this year. I think Florida is in a perfect position because what do you need when you've had uh, a disrupted schedule, when you haven't been able to have spring practice? You need continuity, and they've had that in their coaching staff, and they have that with their, their their key returning players on both sides of the ball, particularly Kyle Trask. I mean, what a what a contrast from last season when we had nine quarterbacks represent their schools at SEC Media Days to this year, where Kellen Mond, uh, Kyle Trask, Mac Jones, maybe those are the three best quarterbacks. And we're talking about a guy that hadn't even taken a snap in this conference, and Jamie Newman. A lot of people are talking about him winning the Heisman. I just have a hard time believing. Mm-hmm. He's going to come in and acclimate to a new offense that's being installed uh, with an offensive line that was completely decimated with very few playmakers on the outside to catch passes from him. So I'm one of the few that's holding out in in terms of believing in the the Jamie Newman uh, being the all-star in the SEC that he was in the ACC. So Alabama in the West Florida and East. Uh, I got Florida and East. East is on its way back, though. When we were at, when I was at Florida in the '90s, it was the East that was the beast. Right now, with the resurgence of Tennessee, with a six-game winning streak that they have, and and uh, Kentucky, I think is going to be right there again. Yeah, it's going to be more competitive in that division for sure. Uh, it's about time. I, I I think it'd be better for the league as a whole if the East started getting back to where it was, providing the West a little more competition. Uh, Chris, again, great job. Uh, can't thank you enough for joining us. Keep up the great work on the radio. Can't wait to see you Chiswick and Dari on the post game show every Saturday it, it really is in my estimation second to none I appreciate that man it means a lot how many folks tune in to watch that show on, on, on Saturday night or Sunday mornings and uh, I think we do a great job of, of covering the SEC and providing the long highlights that the fans of our conference uh, really desire yeah no doubt about it Chris keep up the good work turn over some mortgages here uh, this week make some more money we'll see you back on the tube soon thanks guys appreciate it you got it